0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Oregon fans, what's going on? Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Ducks Dish podcast. It is a busy week. For Duck football as Oregon is getting ready to face off against the number 25 Washington Huskies and today we have our Oregon versus Washington preview podcast here on the Ducks Dish podcast and joining me to break it down is Dan Rayleigh. He is the publisher of inside the Huskies. I believe that's the, the new name that, that you guys have over there. He's uh, on um, he's on the fan nation network with uh, with me. And um, glad to have you here, Dan. How you doing?
2: Hi, Max. I'm doing good. Always, always fired up to see the Washington Oregon football teams play. So, yeah, this is the highlight of the season, the number one game on Washington's schedule.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it's got all the makings of a, a good rivalry. A rivalry I know that you're very well acquainted with. Um, so, I'm excited to have you on and and dive a little bit deeper into you know this game, what it means for both teams where the Huskies are at under Kalen DeBoer taking over in Seattle. But before we get into the nitty-gritty in today's show, quick uh, favor to ask of you guys. If you're here in the live show, uh, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a question in the live chat. We'll see if we can get to it. Always fun to see where you guys are at. Like the video, leave us a comment on your thoughts about this game, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube at Oregon Football OregonFootballMaxTaurus. All that support is greatly appreciated. So starting things off, Dan, we haven't talked, I don't think, in a while, really since Kalen DeBoer was hired, and um, there was a lot of stuff going on after um, the Oregon-Washington game last year with, with Jimmy Lake getting fired, so I think a good place to start things off is just asking you, what, what's the mood of the fan base in Seattle right now under Kalen DeBoer, 6-2, and two, heading into this game, I believe, and it's looking pretty solid.
2: Yeah, well, last year, the the fan base was shocked. I mean, the program got run into the ground and it it basically happened in this game. Uh, You know, they were a break even season, which was disappointing. Yet here, Jimmy Lake uh, kind of mouthed off before the game. Then he got uh, he shoved a player. Uh, Then he got fired. Then the team finished with four straight losses to end the season. And and the thing was just in shambles. So uh, Husky fans were were kind of numb by it all. So here comes Calen DeBoer who I wasn't sure if he would fit really well because he's he's very conservative, very uh, low key, but he was perfect for what all these football players wanted up here is a little stability. So he's come in and 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 it's considered a success what he's done so far, even if he gets beat by Oregon by three or four touchdowns this weekend, what he's done is he's put the thing back on its on its feet. And so people are really enthused by that. They're gonna to go to a bowl game. They haven't been to a bowl game in 2019 since 2019. So that's three, three years of of nothing. So um, I'd say everybody's pretty enthused and and if he could somehow beat Oregon, it would really rubber stamp his program, but it's not mandatory.
1: Okay, yeah, that that's a good little you know summary of where things are at. and, and I double checked it's seven and two on the year. so gotta gotta correct myself there. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting as just a, kind of a broad storyline for, for this team, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more, but maybe you can talk a little bit about just what the culture has kind of been like, or maybe you've seen a culture shift seeing that Washington's been known for a team as a team that really stamps its uh, identity on the defensive side of the ball. But Kalen DeBoer comes in, this offense is putting up a lot of points. You have an explosive passing attack with, with Michael Penix. What what's that kind of culture shift been like since they've been a team that's been so prided on their defense?
2: Well, I think people would rather see points if they have to sacrifice and see a lot of points on the other side too. Uh, it's been really uh, kind of entertaining for everyone involved because no one's been able to stop this Washington football team in nine nine games. Uh, you know, they only scored twenty four against Oregon State, but. Um, you know they they still won so um the trade-off is yeah we'll take offense over defense it was like the sunny six killer era 50 years ago when dan fouts was at oregon and sunny six killer an oregon guy was at washington and they just put up points right and left and wasn't a lot of defense back then either so this is kind of a, a step in the past uh, towards something like that and and it's led to success i mean it you know sure they they lost a couple games along the way but um people will take what they have right now and they love love offense
1: yeah it's it's always an entertaining game when when you can see some offensive fireworks and uh they've got quite an impressive group there from from pennix to to the wide receivers the offensive line has been playing uh pretty well with, with jackson kirkland roger rosengarten uh, and to name a few but uh just to kind of flip this on its head a little bit, I, I want to just kind of talk about where Oregon's at. And then I want to get a good story from you, because I know you mentioned that before we uh, before we went live here. But to, to measure the fan base in, in Eugene right now and where things are at with the Ducks, I, I think that uh, Oregon fans are feeling as confident as ever. Um, I've said it a couple times, but I don't think that you could ask for a better start to the Dan Lanning era in Eugene, uh, especially in his debut as a head coach. He's doing really well. Rattling off eight straight wins since that opening loss to Georgia, which was pretty embarrassing. I, I definitely expected Oregon to be at least competitive in that game. I didn't expect them to win that game, but um, this is uh, this is the real deal. I think that there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of pent up emotion in last year's Huskies rivalry game. Seeing that the teams didn't get to play each other in 2020 because of uh, you know COVID nineteen complications, so uh, that was a, a wild game last year in Seattle. I was at that game. It was a cold, rainy game. Uh, It was all the stuff that happened in the locker room with Mario Cristobal talking about their everything wrong with college football and some moments I'm sure he rather wouldn't have uh, had recorded. But um, now Oregon's starting this uh, back-end stretch uh, on the season with uh, a really tough uh, Washington, Utah, Oregon State uh, run. But their sights are set on that Pac-12 title game and and maybe even a little bit farther than that.
2: Well, the thing I like about the Ducks is they have – both sides of the football playing well, you know, the Huskies have one side. And so, so, um, you know, they they have a quarterback, a new quarterback, just like Washington does that has kind of changed everything around on offense and made everybody confident and made it all real consistent. So yeah. And the ducks have been impressive. I was stunned that they lost so badly in the first game, but you know, that stuff happens. Washington played Alabama in the college football playoff and it wasn't real pretty. And, you know, that was a good Washington football team. And this is a good Oregon team. So you know, you can't listen to anybody that um, says, you know, that thing scars him forever. I, I'd say Georgia want to play him now. We, we, we'll see what, ha- what would happen if that, if that takes place.
1: Yeah. Cause I know that Bo Nix uh, in a recent interview a couple weeks ago, uh, I think it was with Dennis Dodd. He said that he feels like if the two teams played again, that they would come out on top uh, against Georgia. And I think you, you want to hear that from your quarterback, from, from your leader, you want to have him exuding confidence and, and feeling good about the, the product that they can put out on the field and, and the growth that they've made, uh, that they've had over the season. But, um, Dan, I know you're very well acquainted with this Oregon-Washington rivalry. Uh, in fact, I think you were saying you're writing a book on the rivalry, and, and you had kind of a good story uh, about this Oregon-UW rivalry. Maybe now's a, a good time to ask you that.
2: Yeah. We're doing this book and, and um, I'm doing it with an Oregon grad named Monty Anbesk who will be at the game um, on Saturday. And uh, you know, one indicator I, I consider this one of the top five emotional rivalries in the country, right up there with uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Georgia, Florida, Ohio state and um, Michigan and, and then probably USC and, and Notre Dame. But you know, as far as going across state, not inside a state, but I consider it one of the top five and you know, one of uh, one of the examples is, you know, Oregon beat Washington 58 to nothing uh, in 1973. And the very next year, 12 months later, Washington won 66 to nothing. You've never seen a turnaround like that amongst two great football teams ever. You know, 124 points swing in one year. That, that's it's pretty amazing. But the story I have is it just shows you how the Ducks and the Husky fans have always um, messed with each other. And, and this one goes way back to 1951 and the teams played in Portland And Hugh McElhenney, who's behind me to uh, my left in in the frame here, uh, he was the Washington uh, standout on an All-American running back. And so the two teams played in Oregon in 1951 in in Portland. And and two brother-in-laws, one uh, lives in Oregon, one lives in Washington, going to watch the game together. And um, they're such rabid fans. They're always on each other about who is better, just like now. And, and they just dogged each other all week about who's going to win, who's going to win. And then they sat together at the game and they dogged each other throughout the game. But the game got really out of hand in Washington's favor and Washington won 63 to 6. So um, the, the brother-in-law that lives in Oregon had a farm up in the Dalles. And so they, they went back up there after the game, 100 miles up the road, 120 miles, whatever it is. And they, they had dinner. And the, the brother-in-law from Washington said nothing. And then he said nothing on the drive all the way out to the Dalles. And um, all through the night, he said nothing. And this was totally atypical of this guy. I mean, he usually would just grind it into the, you know, his his brother-in-law and just let him have it and and uh, gloat and, you know, just like a typical fan would that, that won. Well, so everybody goes to sleep and the next morning they wake up and this is a huge farm, thousand acres, whatever, big, giant red barn right in the middle of it all. And. Overnight, somehow, the Washington brother-in-law got out in the barn, found a uh, can of white paint, and as big as he could with a ladder, wrote sixty-three to six on this guy's red barn up in the Dell. So, so this is this is your your mindset between Husky and Duck fans because they do it to each other. I mean, you know, the Duck fans have thrown dog biscuits at the Huskies down in uh, Eugene, and and the Huskies have put little yellow ducks in the urinals at Husky stadium, every single one. I saw one. that.
1: <laughs> I saw that last year when I went.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's just um, that's what makes this thing so fun. If it doesn't turn violent, you know, in the stands or something, it's, it's, it's fun and uh, it's, it's emotional and people care. So.
1: Yeah, that, that was a great story. I think it, it, it sums up some of the uh, maybe not all of it, but you know, some of the pettiness between these two fan bases, you know, you talked about top five emotional rivalries in, in the country these are two fan bases that just absolutely hate each other. Uh, I feel like anytime something's going poorly for Washington, I see it on my timeline for Twitter because Oregon fans just love it. Uh, and then anytime Washington, uh, sorry, anytime Oregon's doing poorly, I'll, you know, that's when I'll see, you know, if I write a decommitment story or if some Oregon player isn't doing well, I'll see some Washington fans in in my mentions, you know, kind of just trying to poke fun at the ducks. So it's, it's a rivalry that, uh, it goes year round, but it's really going to hit its peak this weekend when when the two teams face off in Eugene.
2: Yeah, and the thing that that's probably hard a little bit is the Oregon fans and the uh, you know the Ducks could could dislike Jimmy Lake last year, you know, Kalen DeBoer is hard to hate. (laughs) He's, he's really respectful and, and just, you know, very professional and businesslike and, you know, talked highly of Bo Nix uh, this week and, and Lanning. And, and so, you know, he's just not going to put anything out there that's going to make you hate him, even though he's going to be wearing purple. So.
1: Yeah, I've been, I've been really fascinated by uh, Kalen DeBoer and just how quickly he's, he's turned The team around Um, and there's a lot of pieces that have helped make that happen you know reuniting with uh, Michael Penix I definitely want to talk more about that here in in just a second Um, and just uh, I don't know it's been it's been interesting to learn more about the Washington program especially after I got to go out to my first game at Husky Stadium uh, last year that was I mean say what Oregon fans can say what they want uh, but that is a beautiful setting I mean you you definitely have a treat being able to uh, cover games at that stadium out there on Montlake, uh, the greatest setting, as they call it. But Odson's uh, pretty unique. I, I take it that you've been to Odson a, a couple times before.
2: Well, several times, sure, sure. I've, I'm an old guy. I've been I've been doing this a long time, so yeah, I've been to Eugene a lot, and I like Eugene. I I even wanted to go to college there at one time, but I went and played small college football in Washington. But Oregon was probably my second choice because uh, I knew I couldn't play what was then Pack Eight football, so.
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah. Right on.
2: Well, you know, you mentioned the the turnaround a little bit. One of the things that DeBoer did, he came in and found out this team was in not very good shape at all. And so like, you know, out of the hundred guys on the roster, I think he made 65 of them lose weight. And and he changed people around in positions. He took a guy like Ulamu Ale, who is six foot seven and 300. and He was 370 pounds. He's, he's about 40 pounds lighter and he plays... Defense instead of offense. And so he shuffled guys around and, he, you know, he took out last year's starting quarterback and sat him down and, and is retraining him and, and running the football team. But there's, you know, Jackson Kirkland was a all, two-time all PAC 12 offensive tackle. He plays offensive guard now because they, they like this Troy Fautano Um, is their left tackle now. And and he's kind of a star for the future. And Jacqueline Kirkland is still pretty good and going to be an NFL player, but he plays guard now. So DeBoer has come in and he does his own thing. And um, it's kind of unique to see it.
1: Yeah. That's some fascinating insight there about, uh, you know, losing weight. Uh, A lot of times that's kind of what coaches, sometimes coaches come in and that's one of the ways they can leave their mark and make their impact immediately. Uh, because of the timing of the coaching carousel. You know, you get your staff in there. We know how important the strength and conditioning staff is. Those those guys spend a ton of time with the players, um, sometimes even more time than the head coaches uh, because of uh, the off-season training programs and, and everything that goes into that. One, one more thing I wanted to talk about real quick that uh, I think is a, a fascinating component of this rivalry before we get into the Washington offense, Dan. Oregon has recruited the state of Washington at a really high clip. Um, just in general. I think that's been kind of their hotbed in terms of the Pacific Northwest. We know that Oregon as a state doesn't produce a ton of top end talent like the California's like the Texas's and Florida's and and other big States Southwest, but Washington's a state that's been very, very kind to Oregon on the recruiting trail. Uh, Obviously the the big story this year is, is uh, Josh Connerly Jr. out of Rainier beach. Um, That one was an Oregon versus USC battle down the stretch, but but, uh, you know, Washington was, was in the picture there a, a little bit, um, and he got his first touchdown last week uh, against Colorado on his birthday. So that was a, a cool little dimension. But, uh, and then staying at Rainier Beach, you have Caleb Presley in this 2023 class, one of the top corners in the country, top guy in the state of Washington after Jaden Wayne transferred to IMG. So uh, I think that's another little fascinating layer, seeing that uh, Oregon and Washington do go toe to toe on the recruiting trail quite a bit, and uh, at least recently, you know, Oregon's come out on top more often than not.
2: Well, I don't think anybody feels obligated to recruit the local guys. It makes the the alums feel good, but you know, DeBoer has a 19 player recruiting class coming in. There's only two Washington guys on that list, so Washington ebbs and flows with its talent levels too. But definitely. The better players have, have left town and the downturn was part of it um, Washington wasn't sexy enough for these guys to come play NIL has you know made an impact some people are offering more money and they're they're able to do that and I think Washington's very conservative uh, as, as far as the money outlay but you know uh, Oregon is also kind of meets today's football players needs I mean it's you go in there and and it's exciting. You know the whole facility is brand new and it's it's new age. I call it the Disneyland of college football. Everybody wants to go there and get on the rides. And so why not? You know I um, I don't blame uh, Josh Carnally for or Presley for not wanting to be hometown guy they they want to go where it's fun and they want to go where maybe they think they have their best opportunity to be NFL football players and you know who knows how long they'll be in Eugene for that matter it, college football has definitely changed but um you know DeBoer needs to to keep just the fans happy he needs to you know keep a couple of these guys home you know the Jaden Wayne thing would kind of hurt and you, you wonder if he's you know real excited about his uh commitment now because the Miami's going to take a while before they rebuild it. So it's not like it's all set like Oregon or Georgia or somebody like that. So, yeah, it's just they're hard decisions, but that's the way college football is today. It's very transient. There aren't too many borders to it, as far, especially for recruiting. And Alabama doesn't feel they have to get all the Alabama kids to stay home because they're going to recruit the country. And so are the Ducks. The Huskies are just kind of starting to do that um, for the first time.
1: So. Yeah. I'm, and, and I could, I could talk recruiting all day, Dan. It's, it's just, I love sinking my teeth into that, but that is one of the the areas that I think Kalen DeBoer is, has quickly turned the, this Washington program around was the, the momentum that he, that he got uh, on the recruiting trail pretty much right when he got hired. Um, I think that's definitely been a, a plus for them. They're not really known as a recruiting powerhouse, but there's not a head, there's not a head coach out there that uh, will tell you that it's not important to recruit. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I got some I got some uh, gardeners outside my window, so I'll try to minimize how much you guys can hear that. I can't um, hear it
2: at all. Don't
1: worry. Okay, again. okay, that's good because I can hear it. Um, but yeah, so the recruiting is is so important, and I'll have another podcast out uh, talking about some of the visitors for this weekend. But uh, just wanted to to bring that up and, and hit on that a little bit. Maybe we do see Jaden Wayne as a guy who uh, Oregon can circle back on because I know that they they liked him before he ended up committing to Miami. So, Dan, let's go ahead and, and take a closer look at this uh, Washington roster and kind of how they've been performing this year and in, in various uh, aspects. Let's start with the offense. I know the story is, is Michael Penix, but they have a lot of talented receivers with Romo Dunze and, and Jalen McMillan, to name a few. So maybe, maybe it makes sense to just start with, with Michael Penix and kind of what you've seen from him this year and, and what you think has been al- allowed him to be so successful in this uh, transfer to Washington.
2: Well he's just a great football player. I mean he's going to be an NFL player next year. He, he's he's tall, he's 6 foot 3. He he stands in the pocket. He's 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 as poised as anybody you're going to see and he has a real strong arm. So um I knew you know when when spring football started they said it was a three player competition. After one day I said what three player competition. There's only one guy out there that's, that's worthy of this job. And it was Penix. He's, he's just heads and tails over what they've had in a while. And, you know, they haven't had a real great quarterback at Washington for, for a long time, you know, like probably since Jake Locker was a number one draft pick and, and he didn't, you know, he wasn't, uh, he was, he was worthy enough to be an NFL number one draft pick, but he wasn't, you know, say the all pack 12 quarterback. He, so, so Washington, you know, Jake Browning was good, but just, you know, efficient. And, and then Jacob Eason is kind of a bust in a way. I mean, you know, if they hadn't given him the job, Jake Hayner would have finished out his career at Washington and maybe developed into uh, you know, the quarterback that they needed uh, along all these lines. But here's Penix. The job is his. He stayed healthy. He'd never played more than six games uh, at Indiana, but he's now going into his 10th game here down at Eugene. So that's a major victory for him because he's just had so much bad luck in his career with getting injured four years in a row and not being able to finish any of those seasons. I knew he was good looking at his stats, uh, meaning he was, he was second team, all big 10 in 2020, two years ago. So, I mean, you know, look at that conference. He was only, I think he was only behind Justin Fields at Ohio State as far as recognition. And he goes into Ohio State and he throws for um, 497 yards and five touchdowns, something like that, and uh, goes into Michigan and and, and beats Michigan State, Michigan, and Penn State. And, you know, this is Indiana. You know, Indiana had been like uh, – who's a bad example of (laughs) – you know, one of our worst teams in in the Pac-12. That was Indiana in the big – Colorado. Yeah. In the big 10 Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. They were inefficient, but he comes in and he took them to a bowl game and he took them to a winning season, at least as long as he played and DeBoer coached with him there. You know, he was his offensive coordinator in 2019. So that's where they made a a connection, but no, uh, Penix is somebody to be afraid of and uh, you know, he'll make a mistake. He threw a pick six at, at um, against Oregon state. He threw one at, at uh, Arizona state. But uh, he's, he's enough to keep you feeling uneasy, and they, they felt that way all throughout the Big Ten. So, um, yeah, he's the starting point of this offense, and it all revolves around him. And he came in, and, and he found one of the things that attracted him here to Washington was the, the three wide receivers, you know, that are, that are really good. You know, we're talking to Dunze, McMillan, and Polk. And um, then he had uh, four guys out of the five uh, offensive linemen coming back. what's funny about that is they moved two of them out of there you know one guy doesn't play and one guy plays on defense so they've rebuilt that offensive line and it you know it's does what the Oregon offensive line does it doesn't let you sack their quarterback and then the running backs uh, you know they went and brought a bunch of transfers in from Nebraska and uh, Virginia and New Mexico and um, they've all contributed in some ways but uh, Cam Davis is now becoming a star for Washington he's he's right up there with Knicks with touchdowns scored and and he's been returning kickoffs. He's he's the fastest Husky running back, and that guy's ready for a breakout uh, anytime now. So so yeah, the the tight ends are good. So the offense is really solid. There's no weaknesses at all. But then when we'll talk defense, that uh, that changes totally. So
1: yeah, and I think as a just as a college football fan, it's whether you like Washington or not, it's 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 cool to watch. Penix kind of find himself again and and be able to stay healthy, be able to stay on the field after battling some some tough injury luck at Indiana. Um, and it's it's interesting to see that reuniting with with De DeBoer. We've, we've seen it throughout college football. We see it we see it in Eugene with Bo Nix reuniting with Kenny Dillingham. So it's another aspect of the kind of marriage between the transfer portal and the coaching carousel. But I like watching Penix. It's it's fun to watch a lefty. Um, I think he's really a playmaker as far as maybe some similarities with, with Bo Nix. I think Nix is probably a little bit better with his legs, I would say, uh, especially yeah. if you just look at the stats from from this year. But Kalen um, DeBoer's obviously very comfortable with Pennix running that offense, and he's asking him to throw the ball a whole heck of a lot. Uh, kind of feels like an air raid style of offense uh, out there on, on Montlake. And um, he's got some talented weapons to distribute the ball to, since we're talking about the Washington offense, it only makes sense to talk a little bit about the Oregon defense and, and kind of where they're at. I think this is an intriguing matchup because of how well Washington is throwing the ball and frankly, how much Oregon has kind of struggled to defend the pass this year, whether that's getting pressure on the quarterback or having some lapses in coverage. There were some explosive plays against Cal, uh, Cal a couple weeks ago over the top. We had that 80 yard touchdown against uh, Colorado where, Christian Gonzalez and Steve Stevens had a lapse in communication. So this is going to be a really solid test for an Oregon secondary that has had some highs and lows throughout the season. They're going to be without Jamal Hill after he got ejected for targeting um, Mm -hmm. on a bogus call against Colorado. So they have some pieces that are going to have to step up like Brian Addison, Bennett Williams, Steve Stevens that we've uh, seen throughout the year. Uh, and I think DJ Johnson looks like he's probably going to be able to give it a go. I think he's back on the practice field after missing last week against Colorado. He's a key edge rusher for them. And then Sam Taki Taimani was was uh, not available. I think the last two weeks. He's a former Husky, and, and word is he was wearing his Washington football shirt under his pads this week to uh to fire the guys up a little bit more. So I'm excited to see this uh this um this kind of battle between the defense and the offense because. Um, Oregon's excelled at stopping the run, and I think that the Huskies are going to need to to run the ball a little bit if uh, if Oregon's able to um, you know show up on defense. Let, let me rephrase that. I think that if if Oregon can make the Huskies one dimensional and uh, you know force them to run maybe more than they want to, I think that could go a long way in slowing them down.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if anybody could do that to Washington. I I haven't seen it yet, and and you know I've seen them play some pretty good defenses. You know, the one thing that struck me is the two California games for Oregon and Washington, you know, that quarterback for, for the bears is is, is pretty average at best. And he had success against both those secondaries and that, that kind of stunned me a little bit, you know, watching, uh, you know, Washington's secondary has been totally decimated this season with, with injuries. But, you know, I saw that, that plumber did the same thing to Oregon, you know, just kind of riddling him down the field and the opening drives and he did that to Washington too. And, and so those are the two weaknesses on these two football teams is is stopping the pass.
1: Yeah. And, and that, that kind of goes along with what I was saying earlier about how the defense isn't what I think a lot of Husky fans have become accustomed to. Um, But you know, there comes, there comes with a trade-off. You want to get the best of both worlds and ideally have a strong, um, strong, you know, defense and offense, which I think is what makes it interesting that this Oregon this Oregon team, with a bunch of heavy hitters on the defensive side of the ball, whether you're talking about Dan Lanning, Tosh LaPoi, uh, Noah Sewell, Justin Flo, DJ Johnson, I, I think it's just been interesting that the defense has been a little bit underwhelming this year. Not to say they've been terrible, but I think they've definitely underachieved as far as in comparison to where a lot of fans thought this unit was going to be heading into the year. Um any any other kind of points you want to hit on, Dan, when it comes to this this Washington offense and and you know what fans might be able to expect come Saturday?
2: Well, they're really really creative. I mean, you know, they, they you you can't scout them very well because DeBoer is an offensive genius. He's got his Fresno State offensive coordinator who's making a name for himself, Ryan Grubb, and if you look at their coaching roster five of their offensive coaches have been offensive coordinators somewhere on the college level. So there's a lot of input, you know, when they sit in meetings and they plot things and, and they do stuff. uh, I haven't seen in a long time in Husky stadium, which is, you know, tended to be Peterson conservative, Lake conservative, run the damn ball, Jimmy Lake said, you know, and there wasn't a lot of surprise to that. And, and, you know, the offensive coordinator last year, John Donovan, who got fired the day um, after this football game is now, a quality coach for the green Bay Packers on the defense. He's not, nobody even wanted him on the offensive side. So this is how it's elevated as far as just brain trust, uh, creativity. And, and that's what DeBoer's calling card is, is, is he's going to keep you guessing and he's going to keep you on your heels, whether, you know, he beats you or not, he's going to make it interesting. He's going to make you nervous. So, you know, they do a lot of reverses and, you know, a little flip plays and, And um, then they want to hit you deep right when you're not thinking about it. And, and so I would expect them to pull out everything they've got this weekend, because this is, you know, the, the big, this is a bigger game than whatever bowl they're going to play in at the end of the year. And, And this is a bigger game than the apple cup. And, and so this would rubber stamp his program if he got a victory. So, you know, there's not any pressure on him. So he's just going to come in there freewheeling. And and he played, you know, his Fresno state team played last year at Autzen. So he knows what the uh, environment's like. It's not new to him. A lot of his players don't know. I don't think the Huskies have been down there in four years since uh, what, 2018. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Jackson Kirkland was a starter in that game, but go down the roster. You might find just a handful of other guys that got even got into that game. and, and, and just a handful that maybe even, you know, stood on the sidelines and watched all the duck fans, uh, yell at him. So, um, yeah, I'd say it's, it's interesting and, you know, uh, but we never know, we never know what's going to happen, you know, and, um, that's what makes it so fun heading into this game. So.
1: I, I like the note that you had there, Dan, on the familiarity that's there, because this is an overhauled coaching staff for the most part. And, um, Fresno state gave, uh, gave Oregon, you know, kind of everything they could handle, especially when Jake Hayner was was, uh, at the helm last year. I feel like every time I turned on the the TV and I saw Jake Hayner playing, you know, it was him trying to gut out some last second victory. I mean, that UCLA game was phenomenal. That dude could not, uh, could not stay upright. He was just getting clobbered every play, but loved watching that guy play. And um, you talked about the, the offensive experience on that staff. I think that having former coordinators is super valuable Um, You know, we see something similar at at Alabama with Nick Saban bringing in all these former head coaches. But I think if you can't do that, bringing in some guys that are former coordinators to focus on one position group or or one aspect of the offense, whether that be the pass or the run. I I think that really goes a long way in in helping you kind of elevate the floor, raise the floor of your offense. And um, I'm excited to see some of that creativity, too, because it's going to be a test for Oregon and how they're able to stay disciplined, you know, make those open field tackles get off the field on third down. I think this is a game that could have some pivotal momentum swings with how uh, high powered this Husky offense is. And, and I'm ready for it.
2: You talked about getting off the field on third down. Well, Washington likes to throw a lot on fourth down and and even in their side of the field. So that's, what's made it kind of entertaining, you know, as you know, they're not reckless. I and mean, they had one that blew up on them. I think it um, Arizona state, they they went for it on like the 35 on the first series of the second half and gave up the ball, but um who cares i mean it's fun to watch and and it keeps things interesting
1: we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break for those of you that are listening to us on the podcasting platform and we'll have more oregon versus washington preview for you right after this
0: we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed
3: No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.
1: Welcome back to the Ducks Dish podcast. I'm your host, Max Torres, talking with Dan Rayleigh of Inside the Huskies ahead of this weekend's Top 25 rivalry showdown in Eugene at Autzen Stadium. It's going to be a great time. I'm going to be at the game. Dan's going to be at the game. And we hope a lot of you guys are going to be at the game. So, Dan, we just talked about the Washington offense, which is really, a, I don't know if I'd say a complete 180, but they're firing on all the cylinders. One of the best units in the country, especially passing the ball. But like you were saying at the top of the show, its it's a little bit of a different story on that defensive side of the ball um in in this uh in this season so kind of walk us through what the story's been with this huskies defense if you could and, and maybe some names to know
2: yeah well a good example of you know last year the ducks came in and ran all over the husky defense there are only three starters back from that game and and one of them might not even start uh zion tupuola fatui got banged up twice against oregon state he's going to play but he may be moved out of the starting lineup um, I could see that happening. So there might be just two guys that were on the field last year that started, that'll, that'll be on the field this year. And, um, and then the other thing too, is Eddie, U LaFosio's back and he might be one of, you know, he's one of the best linebackers in the PAC 12. I mean, he's been graded out that way. He was all second team, all PAC 12, uh, two years ago. And he had, he, he missed 14 games. because He's got injured twice, uh, once with, uh, before this Oregon game last year. So he didn't play in it. And then when um, winter workouts, he, he blew a knee, but he came back and played uh, seven plays against Oregon State, and they they've been trying to get him ready for this Oregon game, and he could he could be in the starting lineup and um, could play and, and make a whole bunch of difference in their defense because they haven't had many playmakers. They only have nine turnovers in nine games, you know, six interceptions and three fumble recoveries, and and so Eulofocio is a playmaker, but um, the defense has been a mess, and and it's you know. DeBoer didn't inherit a lot of playmakers uh, and, you know, he inherited a Ula Foscio, but he was injured. He just got him for the first time here last week. So you look at the secondary, there were five starters back there. Four of them went out and, and missed a whole bunch of games. Uh, and they finally got him back for the first time last week against Oregon State, all five original starters, but uh, four of them were gone. They, both cornerbacks, which is really dangerous. They were playing redshirt freshmen at cornerback uh, for a good part of the middle of the season. So, so all those guys are back too, but when they're all back, you know, there's still, I'm not sure the talent level that's there, you know um, the, the front line is, is average. The the edge rushers are really good. Um, Yula Foscio will give the linebackers a boost, but they're kind of average. You know, if you remember Carson Bruner intercepting one and going 50 yards against uh, Oregon last year and having a, a pretty good football game while the rest of the defense suffered, he doesn't even start right now. he, you know, they, they put him on the second unit all season long and, and he's still a good player, but I think, uh, they're trying to speed up the defense a little bit and he's, he's probably not as fast as they want. So, so you, have seen it, uh, you know, of those 11 starters this year, only five have started every game. So there's been a lot of disruption, um, a lot of inconsistency, um, a lack of talent base, you know, he's, that's where he De need, DeBoer needs to recruit and bulk his, his program up is on the defensive side. So um, they come in a little shaky still, you know, with what they have to offer again against the Ducks.
1: I think a lot of Oregon fans they they hear about the secondary, which has for so long been a strength of of Washington. You know, whether it's uh, you know Taylor Rapp, uh, Bookie Radley, Hiles, um, Trent McDuffie. There's just a lot of names that have been coming out of Washington in terms of DBs and. I think for Oregon, this is probably the most confident they felt about their wide receivers and their passing attack in, in quite some time. One of the big stories to monitor is Chase Cota going to be available to go in on this one. He is a, a very valuable piece of this Oregon offense, the number two wideout behind Troy Franklin. But in his absence, the Ducks have got some other guys involved. Chris Hudson's really come on strong this year. He's finding a good role. Um, and uh, who else do they have uh, at wideout? Um, Hudson is definitely one of the, the main guys, but Dante Thornton's gotten some more run this year um, in Kota's absence. And they've gotten the tight ends involved quite a bit, too. I think that whatever team you are, tight ends are just a super versatile position to defend and to t- you know, they have those formations that they like to bring in the 14 J formation where they get all the tight ends in there. You got Ferguson, Montevau. Montevau was heavily recruited by Washington coming out of high school. Uh, Patrick Herbert, Cam McCormick. There's just so many different ways this Oregon offense can, can kind of tear you apart. And I think the vertical passing attack is absolutely going to be a factor in this one, uh, an aspect of the offense that was completely missing last year um, under Mario Cristobal and Joe Moorhead. So I think that's going to be an area where both of these teams look to expose each other and try to take some shots. Um, but you talked about the edge rushers. I really like Braylon Trice, uh, seeing what he's been doing for them this year. Uh, I think Oregon's offensive line is one of, if not the best units in the country in that regard. And um, I think that they're going to be ready for, for whatever that Washington front has to, has to throw at them.
2: Yeah. I, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I just this, watching this defense just doesn't put a lot of, uh, I don't know if the word is confidence, but I just, you know, I expect them to break down because that's been the, been the way it has Way It's been all season long. I mean, with the exception of one game, Portland state, which, you know, FCS team, but everybody else has been able to exploit them and hit them deep and hit them, hit them long and, and run up a bunch of points. You know, the Michigan state game and the Stanford game were really, really one-sided and then they ended up as 10 point games, 11 point games in the end, Arizona as well. So yeah, they're, they're just um, it's, it's, it's inviting for an offensive coordinator to see what, they can do to attack this Washington
1: defense. You'd be hard pressed to find an offensive coordinator that's having a better season in college football than Kenny Dillingham. Um, every week I'm I'm just surprised by how well the offense played. You know, you had a couple slow starts in the past couple of games against uh Cal and Colorado that I think are uh, a little bit surprising. Um, but if this Oregon offense can start fast, I think it can go a long way. And the defense can get some stops, then maybe this game gets out of hand quickly. But if the Oregon defense can't get off the field, if, if they can't slow down Michael Penix in that offense, I think we could be seeing something more along the lines of a shootout. Um, but Oregon's offense is, I think, the only team in the country that has rattled off 40 or more points in, in eight games this year. Bo Nix is uh, you know, having a phenomenal year. I'm kind of curious to, to get some of your thoughts here, Dan, just about do, do you think, looking on the outside, that Bo Nix really – you know, has a shot at the Heisman or he, it sound, seems like he certainly deserves a, a, you know, a seat at the table at this point in the season.
2: Well, he deserves it, you know, consideration, but the problem with the Heisman vote and I used to be a Heisman voter. It's, it's heavily stacked on the East and just like the AP poll. I mean, you know, you look at it and I'm surprised there's five Pac-12 teams in the AP poll, but you know, it, it makes it almost impossible for um, Pac-12 guys and teams to you know to get accolades uh, unless they just do it out in the field and win a national championship and that hasn't happened in decades in in this conference and so um, yeah he he deserves a chance but you know he he had a better chance at Auburn than he does at Oregon strictly because of how it's politically stacked and it's just regionally stacked I mean and that's you know most of the population is back east and most of the Football base, college football bases back east. So it's a natural thing. And and it's just something that the Pac-12 has to live with. You know, you're not going to be on ESPN or CBS at one thirty on Saturday. You're going to be, if you're in the Pac-12, you're going to be playing at four o'clock and seven o'clock at night on ESPN and Fox. So those are um, you know, the cold hard facts of college football right now.
1: Yeah. And and I think I agree with a lot of the points that you, that you have there, you know, I think he deserves to be in the consideration or in the conversation, but whether or not it's actually going to happen, we'll have to see. Uh, I think another part of that is going to be, you know, dependent on what Oregon is able to do these next three, possibly four games. If they're able to run the table, uh, get to the Pac-12 title game, you don't want to get too ahead of yourselves, but that'll certainly, you know, get more eyes on the team. And uh, I think it'll help his Heisman resume uh, because of, having quality wins over what could be three ranked opponents, four ranked opponents, if they make it to the, make it to Las Vegas. Um, but, but with this Washington defense, I think, you know, like you've been saying, it hasn't been uh, the group that fans have been used to. Um, you know, I'm looking at the the schedule right now, uh, 39 points allowed to Arizona and 45 points allowed to Arizona state, two of the lower tier teams in, in the conference. Um, what do you think is going to be the biggest key, for Washington if they want to try to slow down this Oregon offense?
2: Well, the biggest key will be how ready is Etafuan, Ulafosio ready to play? I mean, you know, how how much can he offer? Because he's the playmaker they've lacked. He's the guy that could, you know, run into Bo Nix and cause a fumble. He's the guy who could intercept one in the flat. That stuff just hasn't happened. And and so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure on him to maybe change things around. And, you know, he's only played – partially in one game so i don't know what he's really got physically but he is a good football player he'll be like um you know mike singletary or or um you know who else was the other example he's going to be a good nfl football player when it's time for him and and he's just uh you know he's probably the best football player on the husky roster you know overall most talented guy he'll be the highest draft pick when he's ready and but um so it's kind of up to him to see if he can fix the defense a little bit and if they can find some schemes that fool the ducks. Uh, I don't know if that's possible, um, but you won't see any redshirt freshmen or true freshman cornerbacks out there. And there's been three or even four of them um, that have been in the secondary uh, playing a lot of minutes and getting lit up. So uh, they've got the veterans back. Um, so, so it won't be so easy, but to see the veterans, I'm not, there's no all PAC 12, uh, players in the secondary. Like there were two last year and Kyler Gordon and uh, Trent McDuffie, but none of those guys are more than just an average, you know, PAC 12 football player right now. Um, so, so it's, it's their, it's their, um, it's their weakness and we'll see how much the ducks exploit it.
1: Okay. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm interested to learn a little bit more about, uh, Lufosio, um, you know, seeing that I, I see on his bio, he's from Anchorage, so that's kind of cool. But he played high school ball at Bishop Gorman, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which we know is a, a D one factory for for college football players out there in Las Vegas. Um, what was I gonna say? Yeah, I think. oh Shoot, total total brain fart. Um, but I, I'm excited to see what what the defense looks like and and if Oregon can come out and deliver that opening punch because both of these teams are are kind of weaker on defense. I'm oh that was the point. I'm surprised that ZTF isn't the most talented guy on um on this defense, but you 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 play the season to see which guys can stick and which ones can emerge. So um well, he's been one st- of
2: the he's been one of the uh, surprise developments uh with the board staff. You know, like Jimmy Lake would have made ZTF a focal guy pulling all the snaps and he was in the pandemic Shortened season, he had a phenomenal three-game stretch of seven sacks, three strip sacks, got some lower All-American honors, was first-team all pack 12. But what you didn't see or, or you didn't acknowledge during that season is they ran on the Huskies that year as well. And so he's not very good against the run, but he's he's a fantastic uh, edge rusher on, on, on passing downs. So DeBoer staff comes in and makes him a sub. I mean, he started two out of the nine games so far behind Braylon Trice. Braylon Trice is more of your all around edge rusher with power and, and speed to to stop the run and, and uh, stop the pass. But uh, ZTF probably playing the NFL, but he's going to be a, a specialist, a, a dimensional one dimensional player, uh, maybe third down guy going after the quarterback. But, you know, if you got somebody coming around the corner, you probably want Trice in there, not ZTF. So that's been kind of in uh, revealing with the Boer staff is how they graded him and, and made him kind of, uh, you know, not a showcase player anymore. And, and it's kind of up for him to get it back. I mean, I don't know if his strength levels are going to impress anybody when he goes to the combine. So, you know, he's a big guy. He's a funny guy. He's, he's got a lot of skill, a lot of speed, but not the complete package, you know, that, that uh, maybe Braylon Trice is. And then the other guy that Washington has up front, Jeremiah Martin, who was at Texas A&M for f- three years, he's he's strictly a power guy. And, and, you know, he runs over guys. And so he he owns the other edge rushing spot. So ZTF is the third edge rusher on this football team, which is kind of uh, incredible if you think about where he's been. So.
1: Well, that's what we bring on to, to share your insight. That's a, a cool development to uh, you know, learn more about and, and track here. Um, kind of want to start winding down a little bit, get some of our final thoughts out there, but there was actually a question from one of the viewers for, for you, Dan, um, that we could run by, uh, uh, Cascadia surf rider says, Dan, what is this news with the Husky fan base in regards to wanting to stay in the pack or wanting in to go to the big 10? Thanks. What, what do we think here?
2: Well, I think the general idea is, do you want to be USC and UCLA and go to the big 12 where it's going to I mean, I'm sorry, the big 10, it's the big 14 actually, but do you want to go there and travel like crazy and, and run yourself into the ground with budgets and, and just your, your physical fitness for all your athletic programs and, and, and be maybe a middle of the pack team because you're not going to go in there and take over for Michigan, Ohio state and, and, and Penn state and, in a good year, Wisconsin and Ohio, uh, uh, Michigan state. So, so, I mean, you know, so it's prestigious. So it's all this money, but do you want to be a parentally, you know, middle of the pack team, or do you want to stay in the, in the pac 12, where you have all these natural rivalries, where you have everything set up in a regional basis, where you and Oregon, if Oregon stays are the big dogs in the conference, as far as just reputation, whether you're any good at football. So, I mean, I think everybody in Seattle wants to be kind of the big dog instead of, you know this this thing where oh well, we're going to have 70 million you know payouts for each each football team and that's going to make us be able to compete with Alabama and Georgia no it's not I mean you know you're going to get beat to a pulp by trying to do this and I think maybe USC will be like Notre Dame where they can fit in anywhere but I think UCLA is going to regret this like crazy that they did this and and, and left the nice comfort of of being a big dog in the, in the PAC 12 and playing in LA because, you know, they're just going to be in LA part of the time once they leave. So no, Washington doesn't want to go. You know, if they get forced into it, if there's a super realignment and everybody flips, you know, and goes places, then maybe you'll see a West division in a conference, you know, like the big 10 where there's four or five or six of these teams and they can stay home a lot and play. And, but, but I don't know. I don't know what's coming. You know, I don't know how they're going to narrow this down to 70, 80 teams and say, have at it, you know, and here's all this money for all you 70, 80 teams. You don't have to play Montana or Portland state anymore and share your, your proceeds. And you got to play real football games every Saturday. I think that's what Washington wants. And, um, and, and we'll see how they play it out.
1: All right. Well, interesting to get your insight there and the fan base insight as well, because with regard to realignment and, and the Big Ten and Oregon's chances of going there, it really feels like Oregon and Washington are kind of tied at the hip at this point. And I've, I tend to side with you a little bit more as far as USC and UCLA's, you know, output in or projection in the Big Ten. I mean, I don't, right now, at least, I don't see either of them stacking up too well against Ohio State or, or Michigan. I think I would give USC the benefit of the doubt because Lincoln Riley knows how to recruit and he knows how to win in today's college football versus Chip Kelly knows how to win, but we haven't really seen at least recently him sustaining at a high level. And we know that he doesn't really enjoy recruiting. And if you want to be successful, you've got to be about recruiting in today's era of college football, in my opinion. So I I like to see what's uh, what's up there with, with Washington and and the big 10. And we always love getting your guys' questions. So make sure you keep sending them in. I want to I want to kind of wind down with kind of some of our final thoughts here, Dan. Uh, maybe I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and we can roll out a prediction. While you while you boil on that, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my prediction. I think right now for this game, I don't see Washington as a team that I don't think Washington's gonna be the team, the first team to keep Oregon under 40. I think Oregon's gonna be able to put up a lot of points here. The question's gonna be. Does the defense show up? Can they slow down Michael Penix and Roma Dunze and those wide receivers? And can they stop the run, which they have proven they can do, but can they get after Penix? There's a lot of questions there. What does Jamal Hill's absence in the first half mean for the outcome of this game? I think that Oregon's going to come away with a win. I'm going to go in the neighborhood of 45, 49 points for Oregon and and about 28 for uh, for for Washington. So I think – if Oregon's defense can show up and make some plays, which I think they can, I think they can, uh, they can win this one pretty handedly. But I think Washington's going to put up some points as well, just, just not as much as Oregon, to put it simply.
2: Well, what I think is, um, and, and the Oregon-Georgia game was a perfect example of this. Oregon's got a lot of talent, and they've shown it. and They've settled down, and they've won games, and they've hit on all cylinders. But they went into Georgia uh, and freaked out. You know, and, and that's the side of the game that, you know, you never anticipate. And that's what I'm not sure that DeBoer fully gets yet, or even the rest of this football team is what it's going to be like at Autzen Stadium on Saturday. You know, they're a good football team and they're going to come in and, and, and you know, do some good things. But I don't think they, they have a full feel for, for the environment that awaits them. And, and this thing is, is a, is, a, notch up. I mean, this is going to be a notch up than Oregon hosting UCLA. They don't hate UCLA. They just want to beat them. They hate Washington. They want to beat them. They want to do it big. So, so I, I tried to impress on um, Debord, Do you understand the emotions behind this one? You know, and, and that, that score, I gave you 58, nothing one year for Oregon, 60, <laughs> nothing for Washington the next year. It's it, it just, that's a perfect example of this, you know, everything is ratcheted up. So none of these Huskies have been in, Eugene for four years, and and DeBoer has been there, but he came in with Fresno State, which you know w- was treated politely, and 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 came and left and did their thing. They they lost, but I just see that uh, Washington might be a deer in the headlights in this one even though DeBork gets them prepared, but I don't think they have enough firepower, especially on defense, to come in and step it up. And so it'll kind of depend on what happens on the first series or two of this game, the tenor, whether, it will, whether it'll be a competitive game or a blowout. And I can, I can just, um, I can see anything happening. And so I would pick, I would be conservative and try to be respectful to all sides involved and say maybe Oregon wins 42 to 28. But um, if Washington won, it wouldn't surprise me. Well, it would surprise me, but um, that I think it's, they're more capable of doing that this year than they were last year and maybe the year before. So just with their offense. So 42 to 28 is is my, my, uh, my prediction and I'll, I'll take any criticism anybody wants.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's a reasonable one, especially with some of the question marks that you see for both of these teams. Uh, I think that's right around where the spread's at. The last I checked, you know, 12.5, 13, uh, either way. Um, we're seeing some some more folks here in the in the show throwing their predictions in the in the live chat. So always love to see you guys getting involved. Um, but yeah, okay. So we, we both think that Oregon's going to come away uh, with the win here in, in this rivalry matchup. Uh, we're both going to be making our way out to Eugene. I fly, uh, I fly out of Burbank at 7 a.m. tomorrow. So I got a nice little drive for me, uh, for myself uh, in the morning, probably going to leave around four 430, maybe around, yeah, probably around 430, um, but I cannot wait to be back in Eugene. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, be back in, in Autzen and soaking up those vibes. But um, any, any final thoughts here, Dan, before we get out of here?
2: No, I just, you know, these two, these two programs mirror each other. I mean, you know, Washington with the Don James era won like 15 out of 18 games. And the fan base got really full of itself and, and started to gloat and, and, and just rub it in because they had the upper hand and, you know, Oregon's done that now one fifteen out of 17 games. And, and I see the fan base almost exactly like that Husky fan base, just, you know, feeling the sense of power and the sense of superiority and, and all of this, but it, it never lasts forever. And, and I just say, you know, try and uh, try and check it a little bit. Cause I've seen the Washington thing blow up and, and, you know, Oregon's, Got a lot going for it, but but you know just try and keep it keep it sane a little bit and 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 it's just a football game.
1: <laughs> all right, all right, there you go. Well, I think it's going to be a fun game for sure. Um, supposed supposed to be a colder game. Kickoff is set for four ten on uh, on Fox. If you guys can't make it out to Eugene, um, but I'm sure that a lot of fans are going to be there. Uh, I would be surprised if this isn't a sellout game. Dan Lanning's first taste of the Washington Oregon rivalry. Uh, Tons of overlap between the two schools. Uh, I've talked about Taki, got Junior Adams coming over from Washington last year, and the wide receivers have been a phenomenal group so far this year. So plenty to keep our eye on in this game. Quick reminder for you guys watching or listening, we'll be back for a second episode of the Ducks Dish podcast later today. I'm going to be going on Fox Sports Eugene to record my weekly radio hit, and we will be talking about a bunch of the big names that Dan Lennon and the Ducks are bringing in on the recruiting trail, trying to close out very strong in this 23 class with early signing day, just about a month away. So you guys know I love to talk recruiting. Just want to make sure you were aware of that. Before we get out of here, Dan, where can people find more of you if they want to learn more about the Huskies and kind of your work in the college football space?
2: Yeah, it's just pretty basic college. uh, No, I mean, si.com slash college slash Washington. Or if you just want to Google my name and Sports Illustrated, uh, you'll find it too. So,
1: all right, simple enough. Make sure you guys tap in with Dan and, and check out all the great work that he has going on over there. Inside the Huskies is the name of his site if you want to find more of me, you can of course do that. Follow me on Twitter at Sports. That is the fastest, quickest, easiest way to get all my Oregon football, Oregon recruiting updates. Uh, you can always find me on YouTube, youtube.com slash OregonFootballMaxTaurus. If you guys are here in the live chat, go ahead and hit that like button, hit the subscribe button. It's a tremendous help. And then you can find all my written content, especially recruiting, covering the Ducks. DucksDigest.com is where I'm at over there. And then last but not least, support the show, please. It is a great help for us. The best way to do that is to share the Duck's Dish podcast with your friends, with your family, with other Duck fans. You know the rules, but uh, that'll do it for us on this episode of the Duck's Dish podcast. Really big thank you to Dan. Tons of fun having you on the show to preview Oregon against Washington, and uh, I hope I'll see you on on Saturday at some point, but that'll do it for us here. Until next time, you've been listening to the Duck's Dish podcast.
2: This is the story of the one.